Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We recently wrapped up our series walking through James Jordan's book, Three New Eyes. We had a couple of weeks of Q&A sessions, and now today we are starting a new series walking through the book of Deuteronomy. For all of our upcoming events, please take a look at those links down there in the show notes. We have regional courses on psalm singing happening in Louisiana and Chicago. We have a course on First and Second Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles taught by Peter Lightheart here in Birmingham, Alabama in the month of May. And coming up in July, of course, we have our Theopolitan Ministry Conference. So check out those links in the show notes to register and for more information. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation over this book. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the book of Deuteronomy. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. James B. John, who is usually with us, is unable to make it to this recording. We hope he will join us again soon. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure that everything gets recorded. He'll be editing and smoothing things out so that it can get to you all. We are embarking today on a series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy, a new series. We had just finished uh, going through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, and we're returning to working through a biblical book as we've done in the past. This one, of course, is a massive book, 34 chapters, many of them quite lengthy and packed with material and detailed content about the law and so on. So we'll see how we go. Uh, we may just forge ahead and go all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we may stop after a while and take a break, do other things and come back to Deuteronomy. In any case, we're going to have to have help. We all feel somewhat at sea when we're working on Deuteronomy. I know I do. Uh, and uh, we're going to try to include guests throughout the series that can illuminate different parts of Deuteronomy that uh, we we have uh, less exposure to, less understanding of, and so uh, we'll add them to the add them to the team periodically. Uh, in this first episode, we want to talk about some introductory things, and I want to begin just by talking about some of the reasons why I propose that we study Deuteronomy together. One of the overarching issues is the neglect of biblical law within churches today. Sometimes for theological reasons, the law is treated as if it were outmoded, no longer instructive to Christians. It is true we are no longer under law. We're no longer under the institutions and order that is given in the law. We're no longer under the constitution, as it were, that the law uh, that the law provides, the Torah provides. Uh, and yet the law is among the scriptures that Paul says is instructive for us, useful for training us in righteousness. It's useful cor- for correction and reproof. And we can get a great deal of wisdom from the law. Uh, I've been heartened in the last few years to see that there's a movement, a scholarly movement, uh, that is showing showing more interest in biblical law. We had a series of essays on biblical law a couple of years ago as a Theopolis conversation, uh, and included Jonathan Whitehead, who has been a, one of the leaders of this revival of interests of academic interest in biblical law. There are a number of works that have been produced in the last five or 10 years that have focused on this issue. So that's a heartening thing. We hope to make use of some of that, but also uh, we want it to be something that's accessible to pastors and to teachers in the church and lay people in the church. And we think this podcast will be able to to do that. Another issue, kind of in some ways, the, the flip side of the neglect of Torah 
in churches is a recent obsession with issues of justice. I think the obsession with justice is an entirely biblical obsession. Uh, justice, too, has been a somewhat neglected issue in some sectors and some periods of the church's history. Uh, you can't read the prophets without being struck by the uh, by the importance of justice for Israel. Uh, you can't uh, read through the law, of course, without thinking about uh, about God's justice for Israel. But when you put those two things together, an obsession with justice and a, and a neglect of the law, then you have a volatile situation where justice can become a, a slogan and become a kind of free-floating category without any rooting in what God has actually revealed as his justice. And so by looking at Deuteronomy in some depth, we want to tie together the biblical interest in justice with specifics that the, that the law gives. I mean, you can easily find examples uh, of things that uh, the Bible requires, at least the Lord required Israel to do, that would be uh, highly offensive to many of the people who are advocates for justice today. The Bible regulates slavery, for example. It gives rules for having bond servants in your home. It's not the same kind of slavery that has existed in the modern world, but it's a form of slavery. Uh, and the Bible regulates it and gives rules for it, how you treat your slaves, the need for release of slaves after a six-year period. Release of slaves are within Israel, at least after a six-year period. But the very fact that the justice of God includes regulation of this institution and doesn't just doesn't just eliminate it, that's an offense to many. Or the, the accent of biblical law on punishment, there's fairly stern punishments for various offenses in the law. This was one of the issues that came up during the theonomy debates back in the 1970s, Greg Bonson insisting that those Capital, capital punishments still applied in the present day. Capital punishment, not just for murder, but for, and not just for violent crimes, but capital punishment for sexual crimes, for example, or for religious crimes. We'll have to go through some of that when we go through Deuteronomy and try to think about how those apply in our day. But for Israel, these capital punishments applied quite directly, and that was part of God's justice for Israel. So again, that's, that's something that for many advocates of justice today would be quite a quite offensive and wouldn't look like justice at all, uh, and yet the Bible requires it. Now, one last point I wanted to make, uh, this is a point that um, I picked up from Jim Jordan many years ago. When I when I mentioned this to Jeff, started to say this was one of the reasons why I was interested in doing Deuteronomy. He knew exactly what I was going to say because Jim said this a lot. Uh, but Jim used to say when he if he were if he were pastor of a church and wanted to train elders and teach them what it meant to be rulers within the church, he would go through uh, the book of Deuteronomy, because the book of Deuteronomy is about, uh, it begins, as as we'll see either this week or next week, uh, it begins with Moses describing the appointment of judges in Israel, and the book is largely concerned with applying justice, how judges should sort through different issues, discriminating between different kinds of crimes and um, standards of standards of judgment. And uh, for ruling elders who rule in the church, Deuteronomy has an, has an important role in training uh, elders and pastors, rulers in the church to rule the people. There's not as much discontinuity as we might think between ancient Israel's elders and judges and contemporary, the contemporary church, the modern churches, pastors and elders and other rulers in the church. In both cases, you're talking about community rulers. You're talking about a people. Peter calls the church a nation. You're talking about a people or nation that has its own rulers and judges who uh, oversee, resolve disputes within the membership, 
in the early church, of course, this extended beyond just the membership of the church, and bishops would often set up courts, and anybody could come into the court and um, present their case before a bishop, and the bishop would sort, sort through this. This is something that we find Augustine doing constantly. He complains a lot about having to uh, deal with uh, with litigious uh, North Africans that he was that he was trying to pastor. But playing the role of judge was an important part of the church's ministry. Uh, it was an important part of the church's mission. Uh, that was one of the ways that the church became established as a public institution in the Roman world, was by providing this alternative system of courts. So um, that in, uh, that's another motivation for going through this. Uh, we hope we hope it will be edifying uh, in general, but particularly we think it has some value for training pastors and other rulers in the church in community governance. It might be helpful to remember that there's more here in Deuteronomy than just legal stipulations and and laws about justice. In fact, it's somebody has described. Deuteronomy, and I can't remember who it was. I just read this in the last couple of weeks as every man's Torah, which is interesting because the way that Moses presents the law uh, in the context of their history means that there's a lot more here than just uh, stipulations and judgments about legal matters, civil matters. Um, Torah, of course, the noun Torah in in Hebrew means much more than just um, law. And we've got this, unfortunately, we have this kind of dichotomy that runs throughout Protestantism, especially Lutheranism, particularly uh, law gospel. Um, But Torah here in used in Deuteronomy, which is used about 20 times, I think at least um, has the idea of teaching or instruction and as we know, it can refer to the first five books of the Bible, but uh, in, in, in the text itself, it, it can refer to all sorts of, of uh, prose and poetry. It refers to narrative. It promises. It also relates to you know, God's gracious acts toward Israel. So Deuteronomy, um, for the modern pastor or elder, or deacon, or just layperson, to read this, you get much more than just law. You uh, have a story here. You have a lot of instruction. And it's it's important to bear in mind because whatever law is here, particularly in the middle of the book, is embedded in a narrative that puts the law in perspective. In the same way that happened, this is the covenantal model, you know, grace and then and then law in the same way that the New Testament books do that too. We have plenty of legal uh, advice, legal admonitions in the New Testament, but it's always embedded in the story of Jesus and the church and the spirits being poured out in church and so on. Um, So going through Deuteronomy again, these last couple of weeks for me is, is reminded me how much wisdom there is here in the whole book, uh, not just the legal stipulations. Yeah, that's a great a great point, Jeff. I just finished a, a week-long course on uh, Galatians and Romans, and uh, I noticed, probably because I was thinking about Deuteronomy in the back of my mind, I noticed there's several times where Paul says, don't you, you who want to establish the law, don't you read the law, 
It's in Galatians 4. And what he goes on to say is uh, give this allegory of Abraham and his sons and his wives. And he does something similar in uh, at the end of Romans 3, beginning of Romans 4. Do we cancel law by uh, grace? No, we rather establish the law. And then he goes to illustrate how they established the Torah. And he tells the story of Abraham again. So, yeah, exactly right. The the narratives, the the rituals, the uh, covenant making at the end, the song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, all those are part of the instruction. And part, but that, that's also part of a training of church uh, governors. It's uh, they they have to know the story, uh, have to be participants in the rituals of the people uh, in order to be faithful judges. One of the things that I think is most striking about the book of Deuteronomy is the way that it invites people to meditate upon the law. There is a, a body of material here that holds core principles alongside more elaborate and expounded applications. And in the interplay between those two things, the condensed principle and the expounded application, there is insight into the inner logic of the commandments. And this is a body of material that expands in that respect upon what we have in the Ten Commandments and in the body of case law in places like Exodus 21 to 23. Here we have something that invites a sort of engagement with the law that will lead to wisdom and understanding. And that process of internalizing what has um, being given in a more external form is very much a part of this book. We have the emphasis upon remembrance throughout the book, to remember what has happened to you, to learn the lessons, to be formed by what the Lord has done with the people, and to ensure that the events of the wilderness are not just forgotten as you enter into the land. There is a process of um, internalization and crystallization of the truths and mess and lessons of those experiences that this book is really it's the burden of the book it's the um the concern that the person who's reading this book or who's exposed to this book as it's read out in the public um renewal of the covenant for instance in a, a later time in israel's life in the land that they will constantly return to these foundational formational events and this foundational formational document of the Ten Commandments. And from that, there is the, from that foundation is the means by which Israel will grow as it's planted by the streams of water and it is rooted within these events and within this document. And through that, it will be enabled to move forward and to expand into the future. And so this book, I think, is very much one that needs to be read as the climax of the entire story of the Exodus. It takes the lessons of the Exodus just as they're about to enter into the land and really um, condenses and provokes Israel to reflect upon, to remember and to meditate. That's a great point, Alistair. And it seems to have been the intent of Moses in getting all this written down, uh, like in chapter 31, Moses wrote this law, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, 
at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So your point, uh, Alistair, about the, the purpose of this law so that people will remember, remember their rebellion, remember God's grace to them every seven years. Moses' intent, at least, was to put this before them so they might reflect on what their fathers had done or not done, and then, of course, what they were to do uh, as as the Lord's people. Yeah, and Alistair's a point that the, this is Moses' teaching of the law, teaching of Torah, uh, on the border of the land. So there, as, a, as the opening verses tell us, they're in uh, across from the Jordan, across the Jordan, on the other side of the land that they're going in to inherit. Uh, they're in the plains of Moab, uh, Deuteronomy 1.5. They've journeyed all the way to the edge of the promised land, and now this is given again. So the uh, both the memory of things in the past uh, and the instructions themselves, both the, both the historical material in the book and also the, the commands, are tailored to that circumstance. They're supposed to remember what happened in Egypt so that they're confident when they go into the land and face enemies like the Egyptians. Uh, the, the Lord was able to take care of the Egyptians. They shouldn't fear the Canaanites or the Amorites, uh, any of the peoples of the land, because the Lord can take care of them as he took care of, uh, it took care of uh, Egypt in the past. They also have to remember the wilderness wanderings and the continuous rebellion in the wilderness, uh, and particularly the event of Kadesh, the refusal to enter the land as a warning of what happens if they don't confidently enter the land and trust the Lord to give them the victory. So those two dominant stories are in the on the background, and but both of them have this orientation to the future. They're these uh, Moses is reminding of these things for the sake of the coming conquest, and then also uh, many of the rules and uh, laws that are given. There's uh, there's about uh, by the estimates I read, there are about fifty percent overlap between the legal material in Deuteronomy and what's found in the book of Exodus and the book of the covenant, the chapters following the Ten Commandments. Uh, many of the things that are stated there are restated in Deuteronomy, uh, but they're restated with some differences. Uh, and so the the there's a difference between Israel dwelling in a in a war camp, uh, moving through the wilderness, or camping for a number of years in one place in the wilderness. That's different from settling into the land and and uh, permanently inhabiting cities, planting vineyards, they're planting fields. All the all the rules about inhabiting the land gets get expanded, and some of them get modified as Israel enters. So uh, the the fact that they're going they're going into the land it's it's they, they're renewing the covenant they're renewing the covenant that's part of the reason why Moses is doing this the covenant that was made at Sinai is being reiterated here in Deuteronomy again it's all in view of the of what's just ahead it's all in view of the conquest Peter your summary of um, of the book and the contents just just now reminds me how firmly situated this is in the time when it's said to be have been written it just it fits it fits with um, what israel is doing at the time on in the transjordan at, at the on the east of jordan getting ready to go into the land everything about this book just fits with that and and it raises this question we probably ought to talk about it for a minute although 
I don't like to talk too much about this. I remember in the 80s, in the mid 80s in seminary, it seemed like in our Old Testament classes, all we ever did is talk about introductory matters uh, and authorship and try to counter uh, the liberal or modernist kind of approaches to these Old Testament books, these Hebrew scriptures. That kind of drove me crazy because I wanted to look at the content. And yet it's important, I think, for us to emphasize that everything about this book fits with uh, the time of and the time where the wilderness wanderings are ending. Um, it doesn't fit with seventh century Israel at the time of Josiah. And uh, this is, I, I'm, I was really surprised. I got Arnold's new book on Deuteronomy, new commentary on Deuteronomy. I think it just came out last year. And I was surprised that he, uh, he basically takes the approach that most of Deuteronomy was uh, actually written down in the seventh century by scribes Judah and Judah. And in order to, uh, you know, further and ground uh, the reforms of Josiah um, and that what they, what these scribes did is basically took oral tradition, which to me, it's just crazy. 700 years of oral <laughs> tradition, you know, what 700 years um, and, and uh, reframed it uh and put in there what Moses wanted to say in their situation. And he actually uses the phrase in the voice of Moses. So they, they basically wrote this using the voice of Moses. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, but one of them I'll mention, and I remember this from R.K. Harrison in his big introduction to the Old Testament. And that is if they if these scribes were primarily wanting to present an argument that Jerusalem is the place where the worship must uh, be, the centralized worship. They're trying to centralize worship in Jerusalem. The problem with that is, well, number one, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 12 doesn't really make it very clear where that place is going to be. And then in Deuteronomy 27 or 20, yeah, 27, I think, there's a command to build an altar on Mount Ebal. So the only altar that's commanded to be built in this book is not in Jerusalem or not anywhere near Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem at this time would just be a Jebusite stronghold, but it just, the, the details of the book don't fit. And why all this other material, if your main concern is to centralize worship in Jerusalem, there's, there's so much else here. Uh, why all of that? It just makes so much more sense that Moses wrote this book, most of it, or Joshua, his assistant, his servant, his deacon, uh, his successor, because Joshua was there and heard it all. And so he, he either he or one of the Levitical scribes that, that Moses was working with uh, kind of filled everything in. And it just common sense in reading Deuteronomy would just make you believe that this it just has the ring of truth and also fits very well with the situation and not with a seventh century situation like so many scholars today still still apparently believe. Yeah, it just, uh, Jeff, it just shows how clever those uh, priests of Josiah's time were, that they were able to make it sound like 
it's a it's a really clever forgery to make it sound like it's all the way back in Moses' time. That just shows how uh, deeply they put themselves into the uh, the fictional location of of Moses. I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to say anything much more about that, but just the uh, in critical scholarship that that connection between Deuteronomy and the time of Josiah is kind of the a hinge of a reconstruction of the chronology of ancient Israelite religions religious development. So the linking of the P document to post-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic, that's based more on style and the highly developed ritualized religion that you find in Leviticus, for example. But the chronological hinge is the connection between Deuteronomy and Josiah, and everything else kind of organized around that in terms of, uh, in terms of the development of, of the Torah, in terms of the development of the Pentateuch. So yeah, it's, really, it's been really important. One of the, one of the uh, ways that... Um, conservative scholars have refuted that is by pointing to the covenant structure that's evident in Deuteronomy. Uh, George Mendenhall, I don't know if he was the first, but George Mendenhall developed this. uh, And then uh, Meredith Klein talks about this in his uh, Treaty of the Great King and uh, points out that there's a a certain particular development within Deuteronomy that matches pretty well covenant documents from a much earlier period than Josiah. Covenant documents, uh, Hittite covenant documents, that would have been around the time of Moses, and that kind of fits with the uh, with the overall outline of the Book of Deuteronomy. These covenant documents begin with an identification of the sovereign who is making a covenant with his subjects. That's the opening few verses of Deuteronomy. Then they typically have a historical section where the the sovereign who's entering into covenant recites all the ways that he's cared for and benefited. Uh, the person who's uh, becoming his vassal, that uh, fits pretty nicely with what happens in Deuteronomy 1 through 4. Then you have the stipulations of the covenant, the rules that govern the relationship between the, the sovereign and his subjects, the sovereign and his vassals. And that takes up the vast majority of Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 5 with the restatement of the of the 10 words. And then uh, chapters 6 through uh, 26 or 27, you have stipulations that are given on specific cases. And these have often been understood to be arranged in the order of the 10 words. So the 10 words are stated in chapter 5, and then the following chapters are an expansion of each of the 10 words. And then you have a covenant-making event, that's uh, uh, and, a, and a statement of blessings, blessings and curses for keeping or not keeping the covenant. That's in Deuteronomy 28. And then there are provisions for a continuation of the covenant into future uh, future generations, and that's the latter part of Deuteronomy with uh, the Song of Moses that's supposed to remind Israel they're supposed to sing it so that the, these events and what uh, what the Lord has done in the past and what He has promised to do are fixed in their minds through song. Uh, there's a the book of the law, the book of the Torah is placed beside the ark, and uh, there's a provision as Jeff read for reading the reading this book periodically in Israel's history. So there's a there are practices that ensure that the covenant is going to continue for future generations. So Deuteronomy kind of fits that mold, fits that ancient Susan Treaty mold, and that's been part of an argument by Mendenhall and especially by Meredith Klein that Deuteronomy fits better in terms of genre. It fits better in the time of Moses rather than in the time of Josiah. Not to get too far in the weeds on this, but if you read through Arnold's commentary, it appears like now what the argument is, is there's these older Hittite treaties and older ancient Near Eastern treaties. But when you get into the 
seventh century, then you have Assyrian treaty structures, which now what, what's being argued is that these seventh century Assyrian documents, suzerainty treaty documents, fit better with Deuteronomy, and that Deuteronomy somehow is an apologetic against Assyrian imperialism, so that you're replacing the imperialism of Yahweh with you know Assyrian imperialism. And so again, I, I this idea that it's a polemic uh, and deliberately kind of subversive of Assyrian imperial ideology. And <laughs> uh, there's so I, I mean I just th throw that in there I uh, because there, there's it seems as if modernist scholars can always find ways new ways of undermining what we fundamentalists I guess just consider to be God's word I mean this is not uh, it, this is not a pious fraud it's actually the words of Moses that recorded written by him and by Joshua or others there's certain redactions that were made obviously in various places through through the years under the inspiration of the spirit, but I, it just seems like no one can ever just take at face value what is written in the text about authorship. I think one of the reasons why that's uh, that's significant, I mean, there are claims made in the text about Moses as the speaker. Uh, he speaks in the first person in large sections of the book. But part of the part of the reason why that's important is because of what the opening verses again say. Uh, the first five verses set up this introduction, and I think it's it has a kind of chiastic structure. You have references to the place in verse one. It returns to a reference to the place in verse five across the Jordan and the land of Moab. It gives a temporal indicator in verses two and the first part of verse three. It's eleven days' journey from Horeb. It's in the fortieth year, the first day of the eleventh month. And then verse 4 also has a temporal indicator. It's after the defeat of Sihon and Og. And then at the center is the latter part of verse 3. This is what Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that Yahweh had commanded him to give to them. So the words of, they're the words of Moses, but Moses speaks by the command of Yahweh. These aren't direct words from Sinai. These aren't the thunderous voice from Sinai. And yet there's this identification here between what Moses says and what the Lord has said. And that that um, that identification that comes right in the beginning of the book is carried throughout. The words of Moses are considered to be the words of uh, the words of the Lord. As a quick parenthesis to that, um, verse four for the first time mentions Og, King of Bashan. Uh, I, I trained my children years ago, whenever we were singing a song that mentioned Og, or whenever we um, whenever we came across Og in a text, that we would say, Og, King of Bashan. So I'm hoping that we can continue that tradition in our podcast. And whenever we come across that name, that we'll give it a, a little guttural shout out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but one of the most helpful things I looked at in preparation for this was a book by uh, Dennis Olson called uh, Deuteronomy and the Death of Moses. And a couple of things that uh, were helpful, and he's trying to sketch out the overall shape of the book, and uh, and he's arguing that the death of Moses is a prominent feature of the book throughout. But one of the ways that he uh, organizes it by is by looking at uh, statements like, these are the words, this is the commandment, these are the statutes and the ordinances. And those, those terms, those phrases are used at crucial hinge points in the, in the development of the book. So 
one one says these are the words of which Moses spoke to Israel across the Jordan and in the wilderness. That introduces the whole book, of course. Uh, at the end of chapter four, we have uh, verse forty four says, uh, "This is the Torah which Moses set before the sons of Israel." And then it goes into and, and these are the statutes and testimonies and ordinances, and it goes into the ten words. Chapter six, verse one says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord God has commanded. And 6.1 initiates a section that seems to be closed out at the end of chapter 28 with the blessings and the curses. Uh, chapter 29 begins, these are the words of the covenant, another one of those phrases. And then 33.1 begins, this is the blessing. So those phrases in 1.1, 444, 6.1, 21.1, 33.1, they lay out, they're not identical. But they're similar phrases grammatically, and they're similar statements about uh, this is the law, these are the words, these are the statutes and ordinances, and those uh, mark out the different sections of Deuteronomy. I think that's a that's a pretty helpful outline. I think also uh, you mentioned Arnold's book, and Arnold translates statutes and ordinances as rituals and judgments, which I I really like uh, as a as a translation of that term. Then ordinances or statutes, I don't know which one is usually translated as, uh, is translating mishpat, uh, which is really better translated as judgment. And then the other term that's translated as, usually translated as ordinances, I can't remember the Hebrew term right at the moment, but it's often the word that's used for giving rules for particular rituals. So the ordinances of the celebration of Passover, for example. So rituals and judgments, I think is a good translation of that. And then Olson also says that the, the death of Moses is running throughout the entire book in various in various forms. Uh, Moses, of course, dies or disappears and dies at the end of the book. That's the very last thing. But he sees it in the fact that Moses is is uh, in preparing the people to cross into a land that he's not going to enter. That already puts the shadow of Moses' death over the entire book. It talks about uh, Moses, Moses recounting what happened at Sinai, he says that he went before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, prostrated himself before the Lord. Uh, there's a, a kind of gesture of death. He fasts before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he enters into a place of death. No man can come near the Lord and live, and yet Moses goes in there for the sake of the people. Uh, Olson suggests, uh, goes to the point of suggesting that um, Mo Moses' death plays almost a substitutionary role. Moses' death outside the land is what finally enables Israel to enter into the land. Uh, Moses' death functions something like the death of a high priest. When the high priest dies, uh, the people can leave the city. The people in cities of refuge can leave cities of refuge and return to their homeland, to their homes. And uh, Olson, I don't think Olson makes the connection with uh, the death of the high priest, but it's a similar kind of idea that Moses' death is not just simultaneously or, or uh, temporally connected with the entry into the land, but there's some kind of theological connection that Moses has to die before um, Israel can enter and inherit, uh, which uh, if that's right, then we can kind of spin out all kinds of interesting typologies that uh, it's it's the death of the Mosaic order that uh, leads into the kingdom. Uh, and you think of the, the Judaizers, I still have Paul in mind. And you think of the Judaizers who are clinging to Moses. Uh, they have to, they, they have to die to Moses and, and accept Gentiles uh, as on as equal partners as equal members of the church without without them keeping the mosaic law they have to die to that requirement those mosaic requirements if they're going to enter into the kingdom under the new Joshua 
we're seeing a different side of Moses in many respects within this book. In Exodus, he's very much the deliverer. He's the one who intercedes for the nation. He's the one who gives through whom the law is given. He's the leader and the the ruler of the people, the one who solves disputes and things like that. He's also the prophetic figure, the one who's really at the foundation of this new covenant order. But now he's very much functioning as the teacher, the one who's instructing the people and, as you say, preparing the way for his departure. Um, The character of this book is one that it's not direct speech from the Lord, as we have in the book of Leviticus. It's not um, very much narrative as we have, particularly in the opening half of the book of Exodus, Um, nor is it the sort of interspersed narrative and law that we have in um, Numbers. It's very much a book that is composed of lengthy speeches that reflect upon the, um, the experiences of Israel, upon the law that they have been given, and in the light of Moses' approaching death, establish the conditions from which Israel can go forward, a successor in the form of Joshua, a uh, um, foundational understanding of the law when they don't have a, a leader like Moses, a charismatic figure that really um, represents the law's rule over them, they are going to have to internalize the law and they're going to have to have wise Um, judges and Levites who will help to um, order their life in accordance with this. And so the book of Deuteronomy has this retrospective glance to what has happened before, but it's very much the end of an era and laying the foundation of what will come next, which will be a very different sort of time. It's no longer the um, period of preparation. It's a period in which there won't be the same miraculous signs and great acts of the Lord that we have in the period of the Exodus. There will be some in the initial conquest of the land, but things will settle down and there will be a more regularized form of leadership. And so Moses, it is very important that he's preparing for that and that he establishes a clear succession to Joshua and that he prepares the people for a different form of life where they're no longer living in direct dependence upon the Lord's provision of the manna and the quail and the water, but they're going to have to trust God in a situation where they can easily fall into the trap of trusting themselves. I think it would be appropriate. I don't know what you guys think to say also that uh, given what you just said, uh, Elster, that Moses is something of an exemplary priest, um, being a Levite, of course, he exemplifies what the priests are supposed to do. So he, like in verse 5 of chapter 1, Moses undertook to explain this law or to elucidate the law. And you get these three big speeches or sermons, homilies, as elucidations of the Torah, the instruction of God. Well, that's what priests are supposed to do. Uh, When Moses then gives this to the priests and tells them, you know, to keep it safe and read it every seven years, he's given them an example of of priestly service. Um, You know, all the way at the end of the Hebrew scriptures, you have Malachi talking about the lips of a priest that should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. He's the uh, 
He's the messenger. He's the angel of Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of hosts. Well, Moses is that. Moses is the exemplary priest for all the priests that come after him, all the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests the, uh, that come after him. Now, one of the themes that uh, I think is worth paying attention to as we go through is what Deuteronomy tells us about Yahweh. Uh, there's a popular impression, of course, of the the God of the Old Testament is full of anger and wrath, and he's uh, irascible and has a, a quick temper. And uh, what, what's revealed in Deuteronomy is a continuous emphasis on the Lord's love for Israel. Israel's response is supposed to be a response of love. That's uh, in the Shema in uh, Deuteronomy 6. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's uh, that's the first and great commandment that Jesus quotes, and it's taken from Deuteronomy 6. And throughout, there, there's these reminders that the Lord loved Israel, and he loved their fathers, and the reason why he chose them and brought them out of Egypt is because of his love for them. And even the even the wrath that God shows is an expression, it's kind of reflex of his love for Israel. Uh, it's offended love that's behind the wrath, that's the, uh, behind his anger. It's a, uh, it's, it's a disappointed passion for for his people that's part of the an important part of the uh, what's revealed about Yahweh it's also an important part of about part of what is required of Israel uh, Israel is supposed to reflect that love of Yahweh in their community in the way they live together as a nation as a people and they're we're going to see as we go through the particulars of the the legal section the instructional sections of the book that, uh, that what's institutionalized various various ways of loving your neighbor uh, requirements to love your enemy, requirements to pay attention to those who are weak and uh, out, vulnerable and outside the, uh, don't have protection of themselves. Yahweh's love for Israel is supposed to be uh, take hold and be embodied in the life of Israel as a people. Well, and one other thing on that I, uh, that I meant to say, um, again, I, I have Paul in mind, so I'm thinking in terms of what happens, uh, what Paul describes in Romans, early chapters of Romans, and particularly Romans 3. Uh, where he talks about the apistia, the faithlessness of Israel. Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God, uh, but they were unfaithful to that trust. Uh, they didn't maintain that trust. They're entrusted with the mission to be a light to the Gentiles and to be a guide for the blind. But instead, they're eliciting blasphemy from among the Gentiles. And in, in Romans 3 and throughout Romans, Paul's making the point that in spite of Israel's faithlessness, Yahweh remains faithful. The Lord uh, keeps faith. And uh, the the unfaithfulness of Israel doesn't cancel out the faithfulness of God. Let God be true, though any man is a liar. That's Romans 3. And I think that's a that's a recurring thing, particularly the opening historical chapters of Deuteronomy, uh, where the Lord is, is going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to take his people into the land. Uh, and in spite of their continuous rebellion and grumbling and, and fear and distrust, the Lord is going to accomplish what he said. And uh, his, his faithfulness is triumphant, even over Israel's unfaithfulness. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.